And I'm going to ask Tim if he'll come up and read our scripture reading for this evening. Okay, our scripture reading is from the uh, book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we again, again, thank you for this time. Uh, God, we, we pray that, um, God, this would be a time that, uh, God, the message of the gospel would go forth. Um, God, we pray for that in terms of our uh, community uh, each week. God, we, we again, we want to pray for uh, and uplift the ministries of, of brother and sister churches um, uh, throughout Blount County. God, we pray for uh, Church of the Redeemer, um, a, a sister uh, Presbyterian congregation. We pray for Smoky Mountain Prez, um, another uh, sister Presbyterian denomin- uh, congregation. Um, God, fellow workers in the gospel who, who um, may differ from us on, on specific uh, beliefs, but God, whose um, heart uh, is... is uh, anchored in Jesus Christ, who are declaring um, the goodness of the gospel uh, and the truth of the gospel each week. God, we pray that you would use those churches and every like-minded gospel church in Blount County um, to, uh, God, send the message of the gospel into uh, each community represented. God, that you would draw people to yourself, that people would be um, strengthened, that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, because of the ministries of these churches uh, and the way the Spirit is working in each of them. God, we know that that the work that is before us is not something that we can do on our own. Um, God, that you have called us to obedience, you have called us to uh, diligence and and exertion and and to have a, a energy and a commitment to to the work of of ministry and to the work of taking the gospel to our community. And yet, we know that we cannot do that on our own. That to change hearts, God, we rely on your Holy Spirit going before us, working in our words, God, and doing work uh, that we are incapable of doing um, even after uh, the moment of ministry has passed. Father, we ask that you would do this, that you would bring revival to our community uh, in a time where it feels like in many cases that that um, people are drifting from church, whether because of, of the last year we've had in, in, in a with COVID and things like that, or, or just because of cultural factors that are going on, God, we ask that, that our county would be different, um, that you would uh, use this as a time to draw people to yourself, um, that we would see um, an, an influx of people, um, God, not only learning of the gospel, but trusting in the gospel, God, and, and, and to greater and greater extents dedicating their lives to the gospel. Uh, we ask that you would help us to be a congregation like that. Um, that that we would recognize the way that you were working in, in our midst and that you would, um, God, lead us and empower us 
um, as we uh, seek to to honor you, to live righteously among our community, and to share the good news with them. Father, as we open your word, we ask that you would shine the light of the Spirit on it, that we would understand it rightly, and that you would apply it to our lives uh, in in a right and true manner. Uh, We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we are, we're kind of zooming in on, on a, a smaller um, section of Scripture that is part of the larger section of Scripture in both um, uh, all through Luke chapter 11. And so, honestly, all of these passages are connected in, in different ways. Um, but we're zooming in on verses 24 through 28. And, and so kind of as, a, as to, to begin the, 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 the conversation tonight. So one of the great problems, I think, um, with understanding uh, – and, and understanding what the Christian faith is of receiving the Christian faith, um, what is really at the heart of the Christian faith, um, what is the goal of the Christian faith, how is that goal accomplished? That's, that's a problem in, oftentimes in terms of um, how the, the, the world and the culture perceives what the Christian faith is about. Um, there's a lot of misunderstandings that come into to that conversation with non-believers. And so, so tell me if you've ever heard this as you discuss the faith um, with somebody who is a non-believer. They'll say something to you like, well, you don't have to believe in God to be a good person. Okay? You don't have to believe in God to, to be a, a moral person. Now, first off, there's all kinds of, of kind of philosophical issues that we could say there of the very fact of defining what good is um, uh, separated from an absolute concept like the character of God. Okay, so that would be a whole whole thing that we could get into. But but I want to kind of take a step back from that and just think about what that implies by that statement. When somebody says, I, can, I don't have to believe in God to be a good person or a moral person, uh, part of that that statement reveals the fact that they think Christianity at the end of the day is really about being a good person. Okay. That's the main focus of, of the Christian faith. And so again, that's not entirely wrong, but we have to ask the question is Christianity's goal ultimately to, to be a good person. Is that, is that the, the main thing at the center? And if I can be a good person without Christianity, is that okay? Is it fine to just do that and, and, and be a good person uh, without God? I think these kind of questions strike at the heart of this passage. What's actually going on here and what Jesus is getting at with the parable that he tells in this passage. So again, remember like last week we talked about um, how Jesus was, was, was speaking to the naysayers and the agnostics. And he was saying, it's time to, to pick a side. It's time to stop rejecting and believe uh, in Jesus, believe on the gospel. Well, this section is about belief too. It's about choosing a side. Uh, it's about receiving the gospel again. But the question is, is what does that mean? What is the purpose of it? The goal? How do you go about it? That's the answer, the, the question that we are trying to answer in this passage. So Jesus begins with this illustration about what I think the case is, is it's an illustration about moral reformation. All right. Being reformed morally, but the illustration is a picture of someone who does that without God or tries to do it without Jesus Christ. Okay, so so the picture he gives, the story he tells is there starts in verse 24. It says, when the unclean spirits, when the unclean spirit comes out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. 
and not finding any, it then says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Okay, so the connection between this passage, I think this illustration, why does Jesus use this illustration, is connected to how the last passage ended. Because remember, the other section was about Jesus casting out demons and, and, and the, the Pharisees and the scribes saying, well, you cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And, and him saying, well, if, if I cast them out that way, then who do your people cast them out by? Like, and we asked all those questions. So he's sort of on this theme, this, this illustrative picture of, of the demonic and having the demonic cast out. And so he uses that in this illustration. But I think it's a parable, okay? I think it's, a, it's an illustration to, to point to uh, a story. Over the course of, of, of church history, like people have come to these passages sometimes, people are fascinated with the demonic, all right? They're fascinated with the angelic too. I, can, I think I've shared with you before, when I was a new believer, a lot of people get into end time stuff. Like when you're a new believer, man, they just, they just dig into end time stuff because it's fascinating. What I dug into was angel and demon stuff. Okay, and I don't know why, but it was something about that 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 tweaked my interest and my imagination. And so when I was a a young believer, the things that I was interested in is how does this stuff work? What are are, are the ways that that the angelic and the demonic play out in in the world around us? But here's the deal. While the church has sometimes gone to a passage like this to kind of get specifics on how demons work and function and exist and stuff like that, I think it's... I'm not saying it can't be used for that and that those things aren't accurate, but I don't think that's what Jesus is intending by this. He's not trying to give us a a 101 class in in demonology or something like that. Um, He's giving us a picture of something, and that picture is to illustrate a point, and I think the story is really about a man who has cleaned up his own life, who has morally reformed himself. So this is a man who has had... Uh, demons in his life that have caused him to live in ways that were immoral. And so what those demons are, they could be anything, really. It could be addiction. It could be lust. It could be violence. But he is living in a way that is immoral. But somehow he has been successful in removing that demon from his life. His house, the illustration gives us, has been swept clean. His house has been put in order. Now, again, obviously, Obviously, this isn't talking about a physical house or a physical building. Uh, demons don't like it when your house is dirty uh, any more than they do when your house is clean, right? This isn't about like a physical uh, a thing. The, the illustration of the house that they're talking about is this man's own heart, this man's own moral life. And so he has cleaned it out. He's taken his moral life and all the junk that was in it, and he has cleaned it out. He's gotten his stuff together, right? He's cleaned up his act. But notice the little clues that we have in the story about what's what's going on here. So notice, first off, that there is this period of perceived success. It says the demon, when it was cast out, it wandered in the desert places for a while, as if it was disconnected somehow and just out there, not hurting any like anybody. It's just out there somewhere um, wandering the world. But it's not affecting this guy anymore, right? He's been freed from these things. And so for a while, he feels like, man, I've really conquered these demons in my life. They have been cast out, and I'm free from this stuff. I no longer have to deal with these issues anymore. The reality is, I think, is when we try to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps in in terms of a moral um, sense, when we sort of white-knuckle morality, we can sometimes see a little bit of success up front. 
Like it, it works out okay. Like all of a sudden we're, um, we're, we're more careful about the things we say. We're more careful about the things we look at on the Internet. We're more careful um, or diligent about maybe spiritual disciplines or something like that. We see a little success in our lives sometimes. I think that happened in this man's life. The only problem is, is demons have a tendency to come back. Notice the wording that is used here. So it says, so the demon goes out, and then what does he say? He says, when he realizes there's nowhere to go, he says, I will return to my house. Ownership of the man's heart in this story has not changed. The demon has been removed, evicted, I guess you could say, or something temporarily. But this man's heart and mind are still the demon's home. They belong to him. Matthew, in his account of this story, gives a little bit, uh, a little detail that Luke leaves out, but it adds to it a little bit. Luke says, or Matthew says this, he says, when the demon came back to his house, the man's heart and life, it says he found it swept out and put in order, just like Luke tells us, but it also says he found it unoccupied. Okay, that's a key little detail to say this man's moral life, while cleaned and put in order, has not had a new occupant move in to take up residence. That missing occupant is Jesus in the story. That missing occupant is the fact that he has not done these things by the power of God coming into his life, but he has somehow done them in his own power. And so, again, I think the parable depicts a man who has said probably what all of us have said to ourselves at some point in our lives. Man, I need to get my life right. I'm, I'm tired of suffering the consequences that naturally come from, from my sins. I'm tired of the late nights. I'm tired of the broken relationships. I'm tired of lost opportunities. I'm tired of the poor health. I'm tired of the lack of progress, forward progress in my life that I feel like I should be seeing because of all these different sins that, that I'm participating in. So the guy says, it's time to make some changes. And at first, it seems like things have gone really well, that he's turned things around. His life is swept clean and put in order. But the problem is, it has not been reoccupied or newly occupied by Jesus. Jesus has not taken up residence in this man's life. And so what we find is, and I think we see these little details in this passage, that kind of moral reformation, a pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of moral reformation without a relationship with Jesus is, is falls victim every time to certain pitfalls. It always does. So notice the little things that we learn about what morality without Christ ends up doing. First off, I think we could say morality without Christ makes you a target. Because what happens in verse 26, it says, then the demon goes and brings along seven other spirits, more evil than himself, and they come in and live there. So here's the reality is, is as Christians, we believe in not only sin, we believe in spiritual warfare. We believe that there are things going on in the spiritual realm that we cannot see with our eyes, although we experience the effects of it in our lives all the time. And a person trying to live a moral life without Christ is going to have attacks made on them 
in a unique way. They're going to have a target on their back beyond just the issues that they had even dealt with previously. It's interesting, I think, how you see this oftentimes, how when people try to clean their lives up, really what they do is they just exchange one set of sins for another. Let me give you an illustration that's, that I'm not trying to pick on the issue of addiction, um, but I think you see it sometimes or, or often, is that people who are coming out of addiction will all of a sudden uh, throw themselves headlong into uh, working out. Or something like that, right? Um, and so all of a sudden they become that they focus on those things and and they 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 put away the addiction they had, but then they live a life that is focused on this new thing. Now here's the deal: from a societal perspective, I think we would all probably much rather have a community full of workout freaks than we would a community of addicts, right? Um, but the reality is, is when it comes to a heart issue, there may not have been much change. All they've done is exchange one idol for another set of idols. The devil's going to come at you with other issues that you didn't even know you had. He may come at you in ways that go to the root of what the problem that you got rid of was actually just a symptom of. So you put away the addiction or the lust or the violence, but none of those things were the real issue. The real issue was something deeper. And so the devil comes back at you, and maybe he doesn't attack you in those ways anymore, but he still attacks you in a way that is a function of that core issue that has not been dealt with. The devil loves to allow certain levels of success in our lives, right? He loves to make us think that we've done it on our own. Why? To enable our pride. And then, once we are firmly established and self-righteous in our new life, to attack us and bring it all crashing down on our heads so that what do we experience? We experience shame. We experience public disgrace on these things. We are seen as hypocritical or, or weak by, by the people that we have been telling about what success we've had. And what do we find, it says? It says the final outcome of this man's life ends up being worse than he was in the beginning. Right? That's exactly what it says at the, the second half of verse 26. And the last condition of this person becomes worse than the first. And I think, again, we could, we could play that, we could suss that out and kind of see different ways in which that could be true. What does it mean that it's, he's worse off after this spiritual reformation than he was before? Well, first off, you could say it's worse off because he has relapsed. So again, that shame and that defeat that comes along with that. Perhaps it's that falling back into sin that makes him think this time, well, there's no hope, right? Um, I tried to do better, and, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't make it work, and so I quit. Uh, and, and there's no hope for me. I'm just stuck in this, this rut um, of, of sin, and that's just the way it's going to be. That's a bad place to be. Right? A person who believes that there is no hope, there's no way that things could be better. That, that's a worse condition than just being a person who is living in their sin. But I think there's an even worse possibility, a condition that is even worse, and that's this. Now, what if the moral reformation does work? What if you do clean up your life on your own? What if you walk away from all of the evil junk that was in your life but you still don't have Jesus. And from that point on, you're able to look at the world and say, I don't need God. 
I don't need Jesus. I was able to deal with my problems on my own, to morally reform in my own power. The reality is, is that is a worse position than it was at the first. That is a more dangerous position to be in. Because as we said from the beginning, Christianity is not just a moral improvement project. It's, it's a rescue mission. It is about having a relationship with Jesus who is the central figure of, of our life and meaning and who we are. And our relationship to him is, is first. It's foundational. The, the moral life is something that comes later. It begins, though, with that relationship and worship of Jesus. And so even if real life change could be accomplished without Jesus, even if you could actually do it, it would still be empty. Because that relationship is the main point. That was exactly the problem that we find with the Pharisees over and over again. Those men who could claim, and probably in some ways accurately claim, that they were blameless when it came to the law. Right? We assume that at some level they were hypocrites, that nobody is blameless in the law, but I also think it's probably the case that many of them did a very good job of checking all the boxes and, and looking like they were keeping it all together. Paul says that about his own life. Paul says, according to the law, I was blameless. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, right? I was, I was doing everything right. And yet they were doing it without Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus say to them at one point in the scriptures? He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. And that's it right there. If we try to change people's moral lives by getting them to do it on their own instead of showing them Jesus Christ, even if we succeed, even if they clean up their life, all we've done is made them twice as much a son of hell as they were before. That's a crazy thing to say. Because listen to this, and it's, and it's, and it's weird to even say this, but you are better off in many ways, being godless and immoral, then you are being moral and religious, but thinking that you have accomplished that on your own. You're better off being a godless lost person who recognizes their lostness than you are someone who lives a righteous life, but thinks you have done that in your own power. That's a worse place to be. That's a more dangerous place to be. Remember, it's always the Pharisees who are rejecting Jesus. It's always the Pharisees who are blaspheming God, even in their own righteousness. So we could say reformation, moral reformation, without regeneration, without the relationship that comes with Jesus, is empty. Again, as a society, we might like it. We might be like, great, I'm glad you're living a better life but you may be in a more dangerous place than you were. Okay? Hard stop. Hard stop right there. Point one. So it would be easy at this point to say, cool, if a relationship with Jesus is the main thing, then, then even the idea of moral reformation is self-defeating. 
right? We shouldn't even worry about like trying to be, live more righteously. Because it's all about our relationship with Jesus, right? It's all about grace. We shouldn't even care about those things. It seems like that would be the worst case scenario. We try to clean our lives up, and then what happens? It just gets worse. So we should just not worry about anything. We could lean in wrongly in that way. Okay? And I think our church, not our church, but the church, has done that in some ways a lot over the last couple of decades. We talk about it from time to time that there has been this revival of grace understanding in the church, which has been a great thing because we had gone through probably an era of 80s and 90s sort of legalism um, that had its own problems, right? And so in the, in the, in the last 20 years, man, we kind of said, man, it's not about those legalistic things. This is, it's, it's about, uh, the grace that we have and, and the mercy in Jesus Christ. But again, we're always tempted to take those things too far, to take them to a place that is wrong, to misapply them. And so I'm not saying we could ever have too much grace, but we can certainly take that grace and misapply it in certain ways. And so this is what I love about when Jesus teaches, you so often see this. If we wanted to run with something he just said to a goofy place, immediately Jesus comes back and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Like back up just a little bit. Because notice what happens in the very next text with no transition, no whatever. Verse 27, this lady appears out of the crowd and just spouts off something, Right? We don't know who she is. We don't know what the context is. Jesus is teaching about this situation. And all of a sudden, this lady screams out of the crowd. While Jesus was saying these things, one woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that carried you and the breasts at which you nursed. So what is that about? And what is Jesus' response to her about? Well, I think it has to do with that idea of relationship again. We've just been talking. He's given us this picture of moral reformation without a relationship with God. And he said, that's not the way it's supposed to work. It's about this relationship. And so if we're talking about relationships, man, then then your mom must be the most blessed of women, Jesus, because whose relationship to Jesus could be closer than his mother's? Who could know him better than his mother? Who could love him more than his mother? Who could have a closer relationship to him than literally the woman who carried him in her body and nursed her, fed, I mean, fed him from her own body? Like who could ever be as close to Jesus as that? Nobody, right? If there's a blessed person, if it's all about a relationship with Jesus, then Mary's got to be it. She's got to be the epitome of these things. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, not exactly. It's, a, it's an interesting little word in, 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 in the, the Greek. It, it kind of means, some of them are translated on the contrary. Um, it, but it basically means this. It's kind of like to say, you're not wrong exactly, but, but let me clarify it for you. Let me explain it so that you have a more full understanding. Verse 28, he says, on the contrary, yeah, but you're not wrong, but let me clarify. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and follow it. So is this, is that double talk? Has Jesus just told us about a guy who tried to morally reform his life, tried to clean himself up, who tried to hear the word of God and follow it and told us that doesn't work. It's just going to end up worse. 
And then now he's turning around and going, yeah, yeah, you're supposed to hear it and follow it. What's the deal? Why, what's going on here? When I hear your word and follow it and I sweep and clean out my house and it's like a bad thing that you told me a second ago, what gives, Jesus? Jesus is showing us, I think, that he doesn't just save us from something, but he saves us for something. Okay, so if we were tempted in the beginning to say moral reformation is a fool's errand, that's all about a relationship with Jesus, we shouldn't even worry about the rest of this. Jesus comes back and says, that's not right either. Jesus saves us from something, but he also saves us for something or to something. He saves us that we might be different people. So moral reformation without Jesus is certainly pointless, but a relationship with Jesus that doesn't lead to moral reformation is, is not a life of blessedness. Okay, he's telling us who's blessed? The person that hears the word of God and follows it. That's what a life of blessedness looks like. And if, there's, if that's not there, then, then you are missing what Jesus has intended. We get kind of a, it's interesting because Matthew's account of this passage, Matthew chapter 12, has, it, it's similar, but there's just like little differences in it. So let me tell you what Matthew says, and it's a passage that you're probably familiar with. It says, while Jesus was speaking to the people, instead of this lady that comes in and, and blurts out this saying, it says, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. So, right, the mother and brother situation is still connected to this story, but it's a little different situation going on here. I don't doubt that they're both accurate, that there was a lady and his mom and brother were outside. Maybe that was what the finding out that the mother and brothers were outside was what elicited this woman's statement. But Matthew tells us that it says, but he replied to the man who told him that his mother and brothers were outside, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Right? So again, what does he do? He, it, it's, it's sort of a circle. Well, does, does Jesus' relationship to us, is that the end of the story? No, no, no. That relationship should function to draw us into right living. That we should... Our lives should be changed by that. And then there's a way in which living rightly in light of Jesus Christ feeds back into our relationship with Jesus and loving him rightly and being his disciple and following among, with him. That being his people in relationship with him, that, that Jesus would look to us and say, these are my brothers and sisters. These are my mother. All right? The disciples are in relationship with Jesus, and they have dedicated their lives to following him. And so it's, it's sort of a circle in those things. A saving knowledge of Jesus is accomplished through our relationship with him, but it affects the moral reformation in our lives. And so, again, the, the deal is, is we want to separate these things all the time, right? The world wants us to separate these things. The world wants us to say you can just be a good person and not have anything to do with Jesus. And then there's another voice that comes back and says, it's all about being in relationship with Jesus, and you don't have to worry about all that good person stuff. Okay, It's all about grace and, and relationship with Jesus. And the answer is, is these things are inextricably linked, and they are connected to each other. And we can't do one rightly without having the other one in place. We can't live moral lives without knowing Jesus Christ. 
And if we know Jesus Christ, we will have a changed life. Only in God's power, of course. Never perfectly. We continue to mess up in any number of ways. But there will be real change in our lives. And we should see that. Amen? So what I want to do is just kind of close. And honestly, it's something that that we talk about a lot. You you heard me mention at the beginning of of the, the service about that New Hampshire Baptist Confession, about the passage that we read there. Let me read it again for you just real quick. We believe that the law of God, right, these these rules that we're supposed to follow, these commands, these ways of changing our lives, that the law of God is eternal and unchangeable. It is the rule of his moral government, that it is holy, just, and good. These are good things. But the inability which the scriptures ascribe to fallen men to fulfill those precepts arises entirely from their love of sin. So that man who tries to do this without Jesus, he can't change his own heart. He can clean up his act for a little bit, but he can't change his own heart. But then what do we find in the next line in in the confession? But to deliver them from which and to restore them through a mediator, through Jesus, to unfeigned obedience to the holy law is one great end of the gospel. And the means of the... Uh, and of the means of grace connected with the establishment of the visible church. Okay, so again, what's that saying? It's saying God's law is good. These commandments are good. We are beholden to follow those commandments, but we can't do it on our own. We have to have Jesus Christ. And that relationship with Jesus is foundational. It's formational. We have to start there. All right? But why Jesus saves us, is in part one of the goals of it, one of the great ends of the gospel, is to make us into the kind of people who can actually know God's law and follow it rightly. That's one of the great ends of, it's not the only thing. There are other pieces we could talk about. We can talk about worship. We can talk about um, um, belonging. We can talk about God's family. We can talk about uh, all kinds of different things. But one of those great ends is to say, Jesus saved us so that we could follow him rightly. So I love how, man, again, it, it's not a coincidence. It's providence that God brings these things together, that he makes us happen to read this passage in the same week that we're, I'm, I'm not that clever, right? I can't, I don't plan these things out that far ahead. It, it doesn't end up looking like that. Um, that God brings these ideas together in the same passage. So as we close today, what I want you to do is just go to the Lord in prayer. And say, God, I don't, I don't, we're not, I don't want to use the wrong language here. I don't want to balance between works and grace. Okay? It's all grace. There's no balance between these things. But what I want, God, is that you would infuse my works with your grace. That you would lay this grace on my life and that everything I do, the living out of my faith, would be a function of the grace that you've shown me. So that I don't do anything in my own power. I don't do anything in my own self-righteousness. I don't do anything by lifting myself up by my bootstraps. Because A, I couldn't. And B, it won't work. But God, I ask that you, in your grace and mercy, would fill me with the ability to turn from sin, to live righteously, to go before people in my community and authentically say, I'm not perfect, but God is working in me. And I'm trying to live in a different way. And, and I trust that my Savior can do that in my life.
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we we thank you for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fact that he came and that he lived a life in keeping with the law perfectly. God, we were not able to do that. God, we have stumbled at every place. God, your word even teaches that when we come in contact with the law as sinful, fallen people, God, your your law in a way exacerbates our sin. God, it pushes us um, towards sin in our in our rebellion and in our rejection of who you are. And yet Jesus Christ was not like that, that he came and lived a perfect life in our place, that he was obedient at every point of the law. God, because of who Jesus Christ is, he empowers us to live in accordance with your word. God, your righteousness is seen in your law. Your law is not evil. It is not wrong. It is not ugly. God, it is beautiful and right and good. And you have called your people to live according to it. But we cannot do that without Jesus Christ. God, only he has done it perfectly and laid that righteousness on us. Only he can empower us to live rightly. God, help us to lean into Jesus Christ, not lean into our own ability, not lean into our own dedication, not lean into um, our own um, uh, trying to find ways of of lifting ourselves up, but help us to lean into Jesus Christ to defeat sin in our lives, um, to live as faithful children in your kingdom. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.